Well, as we know, there have been many stories in the news as of late about a recurrence of measles cases, people with them with measles here in BC, other provinces in Canada, as well as south of the border. And it has raised the question once again, should there be mandatory vaccinations for children to go into the public school system? Well, joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Alison braley Ratai, Assistant Professor in the Department of Labour Studies at Brock University. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Uh, On on its surface, it sounds like that's a policy that would work and would be good policy as far as herd uh, immunization and such. But what are some of the concerns or some of the issues with bringing in mandatory vaccinations? Well, um, different groups of people uh, adduce different types of concerns. Um, You know, people do talk about uh, parental rights as a for instance, um, I, I personally, uh, and for a variety of reasons, don't think parental rights are uh, an issue here. I think children do have a fundamental right um, not only to be vaccinated for their own benefit, at least in the general case. Uh, there can always be exceptions, of course, for, for medical issues that you know individuals uh, may have, or there might be some reasons to think they might have a medical issue. Um, but in the general case, children do have a right to be vaccinated, and the public has a right uh, as well to uh, engage in herd protection for their own benefit and for the benefit of you know the other herd members. Um, but uh, I do think that uh, there are reasons to tread cautiously, and uh, some of those reasons have to do with the unintended consequences of a essentially coercive um, project like a mandatory vaccination policy. Uh, the, the main unintended consequence uh, that is of concern is the potential to uh, entrench anti-vaccine sentiment. Um, and then, of course, there's always the issue of what is to be done with those people who might, for instance, decide you know, not to uh, send their children to school, if we're talking about a mandatory policy for school entry, might decide not to send their children to school. And then there is an issue about you know, what kind of measures uh, might be needed to, to deal with that. Um, so for me, it's mostly a question of treading cautiously, not because mandatory vaccination policies are, are off the table or should be off the table. I, I think they are a potentially a measure that might be necessary. But importantly, there are lots of other uh, non-coercive measures that could be implemented in a, within a comprehensive policy framework uh, that we're not doing um, in, in our various jurisdictions in Canada. And so I think it's important to uh, look at those uh, with a much keener eye before we engage in something that could potentially have these other consequences. Uh, so what other measures do you think might work in raising uh, the rates of vaccination? Well, there are a number of ones that I think would have to be implemented in conjunction with each other. It's not simply sort of, uh, you know, there's no one uh, magic bullet here. Uh, but just as a, for instance, uh, in BC, because different jurisdictions, of course, you know, have different uh, policy measures to deal with vaccination coverage. Uh, in BC, as in many other jurisdictions, in fact, there isn't really, really reliable tracking of uh, vaccination status, uh, in particular in the uh, Vancouver area, where a lot of vaccinations are delivered by physicians. Uh, physicians don't are not required to update registries in real time, uh, which is different from uh, the rest of the province where a lot of vaccinations are, are given by uh, public nurses. Uh, and even in some cases in Vancouver itself, the vaccinations are given by public nurses. So there's a, there's a uh, discontinuity between, uh, you know, the registration information of, of some vaccinations versus the ones that are given uh, by physicians. So uh, better tracking is certainly, I think, key here. Um, 
I know that BC, of course, is going to implement, starting in September, uh, a registry for uh, school entry, uh, the requirement to demonstrate vaccination status. That's potentially a move in the right direction, but it would have to be done in conjunction with very, very good uh, tracking and reporting. In Ontario, for instance, we have had um, uh, registration status policy since the early 80s, but it is not done in conjunction with a really good reporting and tracking mechanism. And so we're left with this you know, status policy that doesn't actually do a really, really good job of making sure that we know people's status and therefore will also be less effective in actually encouraging people in the first instance to actually make sure that their status is you know, either up to date or that they've formally objected. Um, once they formally object, again, that might be a different piece of the puzzle. But I think the first step is to actually you know, make it more enticing to vaccinate than to not vaccinate. And is there an issue there too? Is it the honor system or are we talking about a system where uh, to to be part of that, you have to show the actual records and prove that you have the vaccination? Uh, Well, again, referring back to Ontario, the expectation is that you can actually demonstrate vaccination status or that you go through a process of becoming formally exempt. I think the difficulty here is that it's very easy to not do either. And then we have this a vaccination gap. In other words, um, a gap in our understanding between, you know, the relatively small percentage that has formally requested an exemption and received one versus the, you know, 20 or 30 percent of the population about whose vaccination status we are, we're still unaware, even though there is actually a requirement that they demonstrate this and that that's followed up with potentially, you know, a fine of up to $1,000. Um, I'm not aware whether or not fines are actually Um, given out to people. Uh, But I know that every year, you know, thousands of pieces of, you know, letters and so forth go home to students' parents um, seeking that status information that they were supposed to have already been provided with. So it looks like there is, you know, an inadequate um, measurement of, of the actual coverage with regard to the school entry in Ontario. Is it, do you think it's too heavy-handed then to bring in a policy that simply says if you're not vaccinated, you cannot participate in the public school system? Um, I don't think it's that it's too heavy-handed, uh, only in the sense that um, I, you know, if it comes to that, I think it's perfectly on the table uh, to require that uh, people demonstrate that they've been vaccinated and to say that you know if you're going to uh, you know, endanger essentially uh, the, the population if we're going to have outbreaks that we, we can't contain, uh, which particularly with measles, of course, is one of the most um, contagious viruses that we have, uh, one to three deaths. Uh, approximately out of every thousand cases. So it, 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 it can become quite serious quite quickly. So it's not so much that it's heavy handed, but again, I, I, I am concerned about the potential unintended consequences. Um, notably, people who um, might, in fact, uh, who are concerned about vaccines, um, about 30% of the population demonstrate that they are concerned about them, even though a lot of them still do have their children vaccinated even if incompletely, we wouldn't want to push them, you know, away from getting vaccinated because this mandatory policy might then entrench anti-vaccine sentiment. For instance, there is a very vocal, relatively small, but extremely vocal and quite well organized uh, anti-vaccination movement. Um, And they have been able to use social media and online websites 
um, to enormous advantage. Um, and it's, it's that um, sort of poking of the bear that I think we want to avoid if there are, in fact, other ways of getting the coverage that's necessary for herd immunity. All right. Well, it's an interesting conversation, certainly an interesting topic. We'll have to leave it there. But thank you so much for coming on the program today. Thank you very much for having me, Joe. You likely heard in the news that Loblaws was getting a $12 million boost to help in its refrigeration, to lower its emissions and to convert its refrigeration systems in about 370 stores across Canada, making them more energy efficient. This was announced by the Federal Environment Minister, Catherine McKenna, at a news conference in Ottawa. Well, there has been a lot of reaction to this announcement and many questions and many people questioned questioning why such a big company needs a $12 million push to do this, why they couldn't do this on their own, and also questions about fairness, how Loblaws was chosen to be the recipient of this money. Well, my next guest runs the Water's Edge Pub in Alberta. Corey Morgan joins us on the line to talk a bit more about this. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks, Jill. What was your first reaction when you heard Loblaws was getting $12 million for refrigeration? Well, I, I guess you could almost call it envy. Uh, as I said online, uh, running a, a pub and cafe, I mean, refrigeration is actually a, a very big expense from our beer coolers to our walk-in cooler, our freezers. We, we've always got stuff going, and, and we're always repairing it. We're always buying new things. It, it's a tough, tight-margin business. And then just uh, this slap in the face to see yet again, while we're getting taxed and nickeled and dimed, it seems that those that are close to the government in power get these handouts, whether they're profitable or not. And it just, it's, it's defeating and it's just getting tiring. And the response to that, and, and I suppose the, the environment minister didn't respond specifically to questions about this, but there was some, uh, some feedback saying, well, any company could have applied for this, uh, the challenge. It was a competition that any company could have applied and gotten some of this money. Did you know about that at any point? I never heard of it. And, uh, you know, we shouldn't be entering competitions and contests with these, uh, I would imagine, ambiguous rules as to who wins or, or uh, you know, who chooses the winner. Uh, I'd just like some tax and regulation break and quit giving our money away to these big corporations. Uh, does it uh, is it more of a frustration as well that we're talking about a company? I mean, this is one of the biggest companies. Uh, the owner of uh, Loblaws, uh, Galen Weston, is one of the richest people in Canada. Uh, this is also a company that's been in the news, though, for for fighting uh, paying workers minimum wage, and it's been in the news for some negative things as well. Well, it doesn't help that it doesn't seem to be one of our, uh, I guess, most uh, acclaimed corporate citizens. Uh, and again, it doesn't really matter uh, whether it's a company that's uh, been acting, I guess, nicely or, or not. It, it's these are just the, this corporate welfare while while little guys are, are struggling is uh, offensive and, and damaging to us. Um, you know, wh- where does it stop? And, and it does seem to be part of, I guess, a larger pattern with we see in Quebec with uh, some of the, the love that gets uh, thrown to SNC Lavalin or Bombardier. And again, all the little guys just seem to keep struggling and they're, and they're told to pay the bills and shut up. <laughs> and how has it become more difficult? To, you, you own, again, I mentioned the Water's Edge Pub in Alberta. How has, has life been for you as a, as a business owner? Even, how has it changed maybe even in the last couple of years? Yeah, well, in Alberta, it's been a tough slog for a number of reasons. I mean, our economy has had some pretty serious challenges. Uh, our, our provincial government, whether one agrees or disagrees, has, has raised the minimum wage a great deal. 
Um, and we have our, our own carbon tax out here that's been in effect, and that's raised our, uh, our, our supply costs as well as, of course, uh, our gas for my heating and uh, well for my grills and such. So we're, we're having a tough time. It's a tight business, and uh, every little bit helps, but we don't seem to be getting every little bit of help. We're just getting taxed more and more. And would you be able, how would it help, say, if you were the recipient of not even $12 million, but say to scale, scaling it down to any kind of help or, or tax, um, uh, a tax program that would help you, say, lower emissions or get better equipment? Well, I guess as far as that goes, I mean, you know, most people, if they aren't in this industry, don't realize that refrigeration is such a, a huge expense for us. And, and older units do use a heck of a lot more power. So, if we were getting a hand to upgrade or a tax break to upgrade, uh, you know, or a better one, uh, we'd be more inclined to do so. I mean, it's a, it's a terribly expensive thing to do. If I wanted to upgrade my walk-in cooler, it'd probably cost me fifteen or twenty thousand dollars. And as a small restaurant owner, that, that's pretty difficult to, to swallow. Um, so we're just kind of constantly repairing the older stuff and then keeping it going until you have to buy something. But uh, uh, it helps to upgrade. Uh, would would certainly uh, encourage us to change those older units. Uh, and which is the the whole focus or the purpose of this, at least what we're told, is the idea is to get to businesses to upgrade and to make them more efficient. Uh, yeah, well, I'd rather see it through tax breaks rather than taking it out of my pocket and putting it in a lob loss. <laughs> I think a lot of people would uh, would agree. Uh, are you left in a situation then where not only uh, the cost of refrigeration, even though, as you said, it's a, it's a big cost for a company like yours. Um, I know gas prices aren't as high uh, in Alberta as they are here in B.C., uh, but a lot of businesses here, particularly small businesses, are saying it's not just one thing. It's all of it. It's higher gas prices. It's higher the carbon tax. It's uh, it's just higher taxes and short of passing all of it on to the consumer, uh, they're finding themselves in a really difficult place. So, w- would you agree with that? Well, absolutely. We're dying a death of a thousand cuts. Uh, I mean, federally, there's that liquor tax uh, in my industry in particular that raises the cost of liquor every year on April 1st. Uh, I have to keep raising my prices, reprinting my menus, and uh, passing that on to my customers. Where Eventually, they get to a point where they're just going to come out less and spend less. I mean, we, we can't just keep passing it on forever. And, and not to be a complete downer or all negative about this, um, but you must do it. I would imagine you do it because you love it or you like it at least. And this is what you've chosen to do, right? Well, certainly. I mean, it's great being in a community business and then knowing your locals and, and uh, running this sort of thing. And, uh, you know, we have been getting by. We've been making money, which is, is more than can be said for a lot of people in this industry. It's a tough slog, but uh, overall, it's good. Uh, we just... Uh, would like to either be left alone or maybe yeah, get a bit of that money back that uh, some of the bigger companies seem to be getting. And on a provincial level, are you concerned or, uh, or bracing for any uh, changes or, or such once uh, you guys go to the polls next week? I don't think we'll see any, I guess, immediate changes. It's hard to say. Uh, this has been such a, a crazed and loud election over here. I'm, I'm not sure what's going to happen after Tuesday. All right. Uh, if you had a message or if you had the ear of the environment minister or the federal government uh, after uh, this $12 million was given to Loblaws, what would you say? Just just quit paying attention to your close, large liberal friends and, and look at the small businesses in Canada who I think employ about, what, 70% of employees in this country and see how you can help them rather than the, the, the quick ones where you get the nice photo ops. All right. Uh, Corey, we'll leave it there, but thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it.
Thanks for having me on. Well, we hear about Huawei quite often in the news, especially here in BC, because of the arrest of the CFO at the Vancouver airport several weeks ago. But what exactly makes the company tick? Have you ever wondered about the inner workings of Huawei technologies? Well, my next guest got a glimpse into that world. Emily Jackson joins us now on the line. She is the telecom and media reporter for the Financial Post. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, This is a company, as you've written about, uh, that has been rather reluctant when it comes to uh, opening up to to people, talking to media. Uh, It sounds like, though, or at least they're trying to change that a little bit. Absolutely. So it's a company that started in Shenzhen, China, about 30 years ago. And it's kind of the classic you know, uh, they they say it's the classic rags to riches story. You had the founder starting it with just a few thousand dollars and then grew it into the world's largest telecom equipment supplier. It's also one of the largest smartphone companies in the world. So it's it's just been a remarkable growth for the company. But all the all the while, their strategy was not to talk about it to the media. They were very um, media shy and very reluctant to tell their story and just wanted to let their products speak for themselves. But now that they're in the middle of this geopolitical um, mess, I guess is the best way to put it, including the arrest of the CFO, um, they feel they have to step forward finally and tell people what they're all about, essentially to win trust so people in Western markets continue to buy their equipment. And a lot of this, I would imagine, focuses on 5G and Huawei wanting to get into that market too. Absolutely. So 5G, um, just as as a refresher, is the next generation of the wireless network that is going to um, require a whole lot more cells. There'll be really small cells, but it will essentially enable self-driving cars and smart cities and a whole whack of other technologies that people haven't even dreamed up yet. And uh, telecom companies like Bell, like Telus, are in the midst of trying to invest in equipment for these networks. Now, both Bell and Telus have used Huawei equipment um, extensively in their 4G networks. Um, So they are they're poised to make a big investment decision. And, you know, Huawei is one of the vendors that they want to choose. So that that's going on on one hand. And then you've got the political side. So the government is trying to figure out whether they will continue to allow Huawei equipment in Canada's networks because of American concerns that the equipment could be used by the Chinese government for spying. Now, there has been no public evidence that this has ever happened, but the Americans are very concerned about it and they are on a campaign at the same time trying to convince people not to use Huawei equipment, that Huawei is saying, whoa, 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 it's okay, please use us. And even though there hasn't been, perhaps there hasn't been proof of this, I mean, we're talking about a country that supports uh, all of its citizens spying. In fact, citizens get rewarded for spying and for gathering intelligence. So it's not like that's coming out of nowhere. Exactly. And that's um, that's part of a, uh, a law that China passed in 2017 that says any Chinese citizen must um, help the state's intelligence agency if they are called upon to do so. Now, Huawei's executives, um, including their founder, have said they would rather shut the company down than obey such an order. Um, they say that um, they follow the law 
in the countries that they operate in. So um, that's that's what they say about that. That's how they they address that. And it's um, they're in a bit of a tricky spot because it's impossible. And when I was there, one of their executives got a little philosophical, and he was talking about how it's impossible to prove that something will never happen in the future. And it's true, you know, you can't prove a negative. And so they're in a bit of a tricky spot because ultimately it's going to have to come down to trust. Right. And and it's and the way you've written about that, too, I found that too very interesting because it's true. You can't prove a negative, but you can certainly look at a company or sorry, a company or a country's track record and uh, and have reasonable concern. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, the Chinese government has been um, involved in a lot of cyber espionage. So this is this is definitely a reasonable concern. The Americans also have some concerns over um, over whether over essentially Huawei's corporate structure and how much of a tie it does have to the government. Now, the company, you know, says it's a solo operator, but it's not a public company. So they don't have to report their earnings and um, in a way that's public and accountable and transparent to shareholders. So you you do have to take them at their word. Um, One of the best arguments I heard to argue Huawei's case um, is that a lot of their competitors in, in this global supply chain, all this telecom equipment is made in China anyway. All the, a lot of the engineers are based in China anyway. So presumably, if any Chinese citizen must uh, obey this law to help the national security agency there, presumably that would apply whether the person works for Huawei or they work for Ericsson or they work for Nokia, some of the bigger competitors. So I I thought that was interesting in this global supply chain world. Would banning Huawei suddenly make the networks safe? And I think it's it's safe to say that answer is a resounding no. Like banning Huawei is not going to stop cyber espionage. But I do think... um, you know, in the absence of evidence, it, it, it does, it will boil down to whether the telecoms decide they can trust Huawei personally. Hmm. Uh, Canada is a, is a relatively small player. Uh, did you get a sense on why they're focusing on Canada? That's a really good question. Um, you know, especially we have 35 million people here and that's the size of a city in China. So it's, um, it's really interesting. The reason they're focusing here is because I think of our geopolitical position. Um, they have also operated in Canada for about uh, 10 years, since 2008. Um, so they do big business with um, with Bell and TELUS. And while we're small, it's still, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of equipment. So this is still a, a, a large investment. And I also think they they really value the research and development community here. So they invest about a third of their global research uh, or about 10%, sorry, of their global research budget is conducted here in Canada. Um, They work with massive universities here, including um, universities across the country, including in BC, in Ontario. And they find that the quality of research here is really good. So I think that is a big factor in why they want to stay in Canada. And did you get the sense uh, when when you were invited there? Uh, I mean, I would get the I have the idea that you were uh, being under surveillance the entire time. Yeah, one hundred percent. Like it was, <laughs> it was. Um, 
Shenzhen is a really remarkable place. It's blanketed in cameras. Um, and there in China, I guess the difference, you know, we have tons of cameras here, but there it's monitored centrally. And, you know, you do you do feel that or I felt that, you know, culturally, it's a totally different thing. And yeah, you, you're monitored the whole time. And I mean, as a journalist in China, you have to be careful about your communications in a way that, um, you know, we wouldn't necessarily think about as much here. So I think um, it, it was a really um, interesting trip, that's for sure. And uh, you mentioned this in, in the article as well, that, uh, I mean, you're under surveillance 100% of the time when you're there, but this is a company that doesn't so much like being uh, surveilled itself. Do you think that will change at all, or will they have to change that to be a player on the global stage, uh, specifically for 5G? I think that's what they're trying to do, because you know what, Canada's a small player, sure, but they also need to stay in Europe, Um Europe and um, makes up a really big chunk of its business. So it is critical in this campaign against it that it needs to convince people it's trustworthy. Um, it has never opened up to the media before, and you can tell it's it's a strain for it. This is not something that comes naturally to it. Um, I do think I do think they're going to have to because there there comes a point when. When if, if this whole question boils down to trust and can you convince the telecom operators to use it instead of one of its competitors, um, people in the West are used to seeing more transparency than um, you would see from a private company in China. So I do think I do think they are trying to do that. Um, it, I think they're going to be pushed to do more and more of that. It remains to be seen whether that works for them. All right. And just uh, finally, did they pay for the journalist to come there or, or was it or, or did, did you no, go there? No, no. They, no, they didn't um, pay for that. I'm, OK, <laughs> sorry. Just curious. And no. did they was there any restriction on what you could report? No. And, and I just want to be really clear, um, Post Media, and as I'm sure it, with your company as well, our journalistic practice is we do not pay for travel. So paid for the flights, paid for um, the hotel, um, etc. There were no restrictions. There, there was uh, some restrictions, you know, but typical restrictions, you know, when we went on a tour of their manufacturing facility, we couldn't take pictures of it. But that's pretty common. Right. You would never expect to take pictures of um, you know, a proprietary manufacturing facility. Um, and th- that was that was about it. You know, and when we were in the cybersecurity center, there were places we couldn't see and we were ushered from place to place pretty quickly. So it was definitely a controlled tour. But um, I, I mean, you're not going to get uh, it, it was very controlled, I will say, but it wasn't uh, they, they didn't say, no, this topic is off limits or anything like that. We asked about Meng Wanzhou and uh, her arrest and the geopolitical issues and had conversations about that. All right. Well, it's a a fascinating piece. Uh, Emily, I'll leave it there, but thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Hope you have a great weekend. Well, if we look back at elections in this province and federally, we know that polls can sometimes be wildly inaccurate, but they can also give us a glimpse as to where things stand before people cast their ballots. And that's what's happening in Alberta right now. An Angus Reid Institute poll shows that the gap between the New Democrats and the United Conservative Party is narrower, but it still has the UCP ahead of 
the NDP. Joining us to talk a bit more about this is Rob Breckenridge, host at 770 CHQR in Calgary. Rob, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, good morning, Joe. Uh, so a lot of people, I understand, are going to the advance polls. Yeah, it's been really interesting this time. The, the numbers are about double what they were in the last election uh, for advanced polling. So everyone's kind of wondering at this point, I mean, is this indicative of, of a massive turnout on, on Tuesday, or is this just simply the, the ease in which you can uh, vote in advanced polls this time around? They have more advanced polls, uh, but not only that, they now have a provision where you don't even have to vote in your own riding. If, if you're at work or on the road somewhere and there's a polling station nearby, you show up and uh, show where you're from. They can print out a, a ballot and you can vote anywhere. So I, I, I suspect it's probably more the, the convenience angle why we see the numbers up. But at the same time, I mean, you know, the, people are pretty engaged in this election. We had 58% turnout in 2015. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see it higher on Tuesday. And the issues uh, as well that people are most focused on and talking about, uh, the poll puts it uh, economic issues, not a huge surprise that that's at the top of the list. Uh, what do you think that means or how does that translate, though, as far as how people are voting? Well, and I think that that's, that's a big obstacle for the uh, incumbent NDP. I, I, you know, and I, we've sort of expected that all along, that, that Alberta's economy has remained kind of, of stagnant. And people realize we went through a real downturn, 2015, 2016. Uh, but once we didn't really see that much of recovery materialize through 2017 and 2018, I think people really started to, to take it out on the government. And going into this election, I mean, any government anywhere going into an election with uh, you know a, a stagnant economy or at least the perception that things aren't going where they need to be going, uh, you know, they're going to wear a lot of that. And that's a big problem for, for the NDP. Poll after poll has shown the jobs pipelines, the economy. That's a big issue in this campaign. Now, other issues obviously do and, and have come up in this campaign that, that have become issues, but it hasn't really knocked those off the, the top of the list. And going into Tuesday, I, I don't know if that's changed enough to give the NDP any, any kind of hope. And uh, the, we've heard uh, a lot uh, recently in the last couple of days uh, from Jason Kenney, the uh, leader of the United Conservative Party, uh, using B.C. a little bit of a punching bag, saying yeah. uh, if B.C. wants to be carbon free within the next 20 years, no problem. He can make that happen in a day. Uh, do you think that g- gets him support in kind of the ongoing battle between B.C. and Alberta? Well, it probably does. Uh, I'll admit, I mean, I don't know how much that's actually going to accomplish or, or whether, you know, we really strengthen our hand by, by resorting to those kind of tactics. That, that may indeed backfire on us in some ways, I suspect. But I, I just, it's kind of indicative of, of uh, a frustrated mood in Alberta right now that uh, maybe, you know, that, that the federal government's been an obstacle in some respects, that the B.C. government has been an obstacle in, in some respects. And, yeah, I think Jason Kenney is tapping into that sense of, you know, let's let's fight back. Let's not just take all of this lying down. And and again, I, I I don't know to what extent raising the temperature in that way is is going to get anything done. But that just kind of gives you a glimpse of of the mood of a lot of people, or at least people that might be inclined to to vote UCP. I don't know that New Democrat voters are, are quite as as angry in that sense, but there certainly is that that uh, atmosphere here at the moment. Uh, the political landscape has changed since the last uh, election uh, when we uh, saw how the Wild Rose Party uh, was was leading in a lot of the polls. It certainly was doing very well in a lot of the polls that uh, did not uh, do as well, obviously, at uh, during the actual election. Uh, how do you think politically or, or will the landscape, uh, how does that play out in that it is so much different this time? Yeah, it really is. It's, it's an election like we haven't seen in Alberta. I mean, it's pretty rare that Alberta changes governments to begin with. There haven't been many instances of that in our history. 
you know, I mean, going to the back, back to the last election, Jim Prentice and the PC party were, were going in as the incumbents. And, you know, at one point they seemed untouchable. They were going to roll to victory. And it became ultimately a, a three-way race. And then the NDP kind of snuck up the middle and, and won the vote. I mean, prior to 2015, the NDP hadn't really been much of a factor in Alberta politics, typically no more than three, four, five seats, not, not much of a presence in the legislature. So a combination of factors, including, I think, you know, Rachel Notley and her likability, turned them into a, a political force. So I think, you know, the question now going into this election, you've got now the PCs and the Wild Rose that have merged into this United Conservative Party, and I, you know, I think that eliminates a lot of the vote splitting in the last election. But if the NDP aren't going to win this election, can they survive as you know, a, a strong opposition party? They, they have 51 seats, 41 needed for a majority. If they go to you know, single digits, that, that might kind of reset the political map all over again. But if they can hold on to 20, 30 seats and and maybe Rachel Notley stays on as leader. She is still, you know, she upholds her party in a lot of these polls. That, uh, you know, that we could still see a competitive two-party system, I think kind of similar to what BC has going forward. So it, I think, you know, even if the UCP do win, which all the polls suggest, I mean, it, there can be a lot of interesting things to watch on Tuesday. And what about concerns? And I get it, the, the economy is top of mind uh, for many people, if, if not everybody uh, in Alberta uh, and every province, probably for that matter. Uh, we had the uh, now infamous uh, exchange between Charles Adler and Jason Kenney uh, here on this uh, station yep. on, on Charles's show. Uh, is there concern, do you think, uh, with some of of the candidates or uh, some of the the uh, uh, with the party with the with the UCP and and perhaps what uh, what it stands for. Yeah, I, I think there has been I, you know, and I, in a different election, maybe where the economy wasn't as big an issue, maybe this this might have tipped the balance in the election. I, I think Jason Kenney has been kind of awkward in in handling some of these issues, and and you know, I don't know that that's reflected on him well. Certainly, the NDP would much prefer to have an issue or, or an election around social issues, uh, not just what some of these candidates are saying, but the whole issue of gay straight alliances in schools where, where Jason Kenney, I think, you know, kind of stepped in it a little bit. So uh, that, that has been an issue, and I think perhaps it has eroded UCP support somewhat, or at least maybe motivated left of center or undecided voters to the NDP. I just... I don't see it being enough. Uh, certainly the polls haven't indicated any kind of major shift uh, in support, but uh, it has been an issue. It definitely has been. All right. I only have a minute left. Just one more question. Now, this poll found a majority of, of those polled said that Rachel Notley hasn't done enough to stand up for the oil and gas industry. Do you think that's what people are going to be thinking of when they cast their ballots? I think that's going to be a factor. And, you know, I mean, some of it might be unfair. A lot of it, regardless of who the premier is, it's outside of, of their control. But I, I do think, you know, people look at Rachel Notley and say, what have you accomplished? As, as I guess you would ask of any incumbent, incumbent government, what have you done for us? What have you been able to achieve? And if things had gone the other way, I'm sure she might have been trumpeting that as a success. So I, I do think that that is going to be a factor. And I think ultimately that's probably one of the reasons why the NDP are, are likely to, to be a one-term government. All right. Well, we will be watching uh, what happens there on Tuesday. Rob, thank you so much. Appreciate your time this morning. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me.